0: You're listening to the Place Northwest podcast, your digital resource for the latest insight and analysis on all things property in the northwest
1: of England. Listen when you want, where you want. Hello, and welcome to this Place Northwest podcast, kindly sponsored by Wirral based architecture firm Paddock Johnson. I'm your host, Dan Whelan, and today I'm joined by Simon Halliwell, director of Paddock Johnson and Steve Grimster, Director of Cheshire-based planning firm Grimster Planning. Hello to you both. Hi Dan. Afternoon Dan. Uh, Today we're going to be talking about the proposed planning reforms. Uh, The current system has been deemed unfit for purpose. The planning reforms are aimed at simplifying and speeding up the current planning process. Uh, We're going to be talking about the impact that's going to have on architecture and uh, Robert Jenrick's vision of beautiful buildings. Um, Simon's going to provide insight into that, and Steve is going to provide insight into the planning side of the argument. Um, so, uh, Simon, we'll start with you. Tell us a little bit about Paddock-Johnson uh, and the work that you do and what you're currently working on.
2: Yeah, thanks, Dan. Um, yeah, Paddock-Johnson, a firm of architects um, who who are based in Port Sunlight on the Wirral. Uh, Port Sunlight being really one of the exemplar settlements that has been built in the last I suppose, 150 years, an uh, in, in exemplar in terms of housing and community space, public space. Um, and yeah, we, we get involved in an awful lot of housing uh, as part of our day-to-day, as well as uh, we, we deal a lot in conservation, which is helpful, being based here as well. And uh, in-house, we also have um, uh, health and safety and, and building surveying. So, you know, a lot of what we're working on at the moment, um, large housing schemes, small housing schemes, infill developments, right across a number of uh, councils across the north of England, very much with a, a focus on uh, delivering design conscious developments, which, which, which suit the uh, places that they are.
1: Excellent. And, and Steve, tell us a little bit about your uh, consultancy and the work that you do. Well, I established
0: Grimster Planning 12 months ago now, last September. Um, that was after working in Manchester for 14 years for uh, property and planning consultancy practices. Um, and s- similar to Simon, really, most of my work is in the residential sector. Um, so so house, house building and also sort of extra care as well. Um, and a lot of work also in the affordable housing sector. Um, so uh, a mix of work over uh, sort of the north of England and also um, North Wales. And, and again, similar to Simon, greenfield sites down to sort of uh redevelopment of, of brownfield land and, uh, and brownfield land in the Green belt.
1: excellent and uh, as is the way of the world these days um we're all recording this podcast from different locations um i'm in in salford simon you're at your office in port sunlight as you mentioned and steve you're in um tarpoli in, in mm-hmm. cheshire and i yeah. think simon you, you mentioned there about your office in port sunlight and and how that um, development is sort of an exemplar and possibly something that we could see more of in the future. But we'll come to that later on. Just tell us a little bit about the history behind Port Sunlight.
2: Yeah, very quickly. I and mean, it's special for many reasons, really. It's, um, it was Sort of a vision of a model settlement for the workers of uh, Lever Brothers, or what's Lever Brothers now, um, uh, the, the factory which is which is located right next to the village, and it's very much a village which which was master planned initially by Lord Leverhulme and his team of architects, but really has grown organically, dependent on the success of um, the Lever factory, really, and and it started to be built in the eighteen eighties. Our our actual office is the converted schoolhouse, which was the original school on the village. And as the village grew, um, it's up to 900 houses, I think, now. Um, They built a bigger school further down into the centre of the village. It's really, there's absolutely everything here you could possibly need or or there was when it was built. Some things have been um, changed slightly since then, but it it was built with a pub, uh, albeit it was a temperance pub at the beginning. Uh, which it isn't now, and um, it had its own shops, open space, its own auditoria, its own outdoor pool, and, and places you could, you know, really enjoy everything about living, um, you know, in a community. And we must remember that a lot of the people who lived here initially would have come from slums, effectively back-to-back houses. Uh, we take this for granted now, but it's a, it really is a wonderful place to be based. And I lived here myself for ten years. Um, and I think this sort of semi-organic growth of developments is something which is very much restricted by planning policy now. And this led us to start to think about the current planning system, really, and how it how it would be applied in many ways to Port, uh, port Sunlight now.
1: Yeah, so it, it sounds like a, a, sort of an idyllic place to, to live and to work. Mm. Um, we've spoken in the weeks leading up to this podcast about how under the cur- current planning system, Port Sunlight wouldn't exist mm. and could, yeah could you elaborate on that a little bit and why that is
2: yeah i mean i think there's been a lot of talk about design guides uh, in relation to this the emerging planning policy through this white paper that was released and you sort of think well port sunlight itself doesn't fit a design guide um, there's no design guide w- which would lead to the creation of a village and a community uh, such as Port Sunlight, it's a mixture of everything. It's a mixture of styles, it's a mixture of use, land use, it's a mixture of public and private space. And, you know, something that, that the day to day sort of planning um, guidance that we deal with, things such as in- interface distances, um, garden sizes, and dimensions, all now seem to be set in stone. And, you know, what Port Sunlight has always done is uh, it, it trades off some of those things against say having allotments instead of you know a huge garden it has public open space and community facilities instead of providing private open space um and you know it's it's sort of typified by uh, uh what we call um housing blocks really the sort of u-shaped or o-shaped uh, blocks of housing which are very high density but then this is offset again against it's actually quite space hungry because of the amount of open space. But it's it's very it's very much unique and um I think I think that's something which maybe current planning policy doesn't uh I suppose encourage
1: <laughs> yeah. is,
2: is the best way of putting it
1: yeah i mean one of the the words that crops up a lot in in my job and i'm sure you, your job as well is is placemaking mm. and, and you know the features that you mentioned there the port the auditoriums um the allotments it very much sounds like uh port sunlight even though it was developed so many years ago had that placemaking at its heart you know it, it provided yeah. everything for the residents living there and if we think now about the sort of the volume, some of the volume, house builders and and the big estates that we see, they they don't have that,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, and and that seems like a shame to me.
2: Yeah, and and it's often, um, you know, with the major developments that happen, unfortunately, the the communal space or the the public space are the things which disappear first. Um, and you know, we hear about uh, settlements being planned in green belts and various other places. To do that, you have to provide absolutely everything that people would need living there. No, well, no more uh, more important than right now because we're, we're almost because of what's happening with COVID, we're all becoming much more localized. We've gone from, you know, the big picture, the globalized picture, down to a much more localized picture, and we're relying much more heavily on local business now. Um, and I think that's a really important point uh, and one which um, planning policy can address quite simply, really.
1: Absolutely, and Steve, if, if a developer approached you uh, for a project that was similar to to pulse Sunlight in terms of its its uh, what it offered in terms of the housing and the and the facilities, well, how difficult would that be to get planning approval for under the current system? What what would your would your job be made particularly difficult if that scheme was brought to you?
0: I mean, I guess the difference with with Port Sunlight is it was obviously built in the in the late eighteen hundreds, so it was pre the town and country planning act, pre pre greenbelt constraints, etc. Obviously, today we are very much sort of plan led, plan driven, um, and as part of that, we do have numerous planning policies to satisfy. Um, alongside that, obviously as well is is the viability of schemes to to make sure that they stack up for the developers. Um, so. If somebody came to me with a concept of a port sunlight, it would be very exciting to work on something like that because it is a unique type of development. I don't think necessarily we will get that now, mainly because of the way planning policy is is driving forward development and the way it is now a plan led system from what it was previously. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And one of Robert Jenrick, obviously the the housing secretary, one of his um, main points from the planning white paper was he wants to back uh, more beautiful buildings. And I'll say that in inverted commas, obviously, because that's beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Um, (laughs) Do you think that these planning reforms, Steve, could result in more, um, quote, beautiful developments? Maybe not to the extent of Port Sunlight, but certainly more. And the, the cookie-cutter uh, estates that we see presently.
0: Yeah, you would hope so. I mean, I, I support good design. That's what we all strive for in, in the industry, and I don't think there's any reason why else we shouldn't target high-quality good design. And I think, to be fair, most people who, who I certainly work with do so anyway already. Yeah. Um, I think in terms of the design code initiative, which is obviously something we can talk about a bit more, that is is a step in the right direction in terms of bringing about good quality design. Um, I guess the key is making sure that's not too prescriptive and therefore does actually um, restrict the ability to sort of um, architectural license and flair to create uh, innovation and, and a diverse range of, of, of developments. Um, so I think it's going to be very much the, you know, the devil's in the detail and I know the government is, is bringing forward a national model design code to, to direct the, uh, the preparation of design codes. So, you know much will depend on on what is included in that document
1: when it comes forward. Absolutely. And Simon, speaking about architectural flair there, <laughs> um, do you feel under the current system that you're that you have sort of sufficient freedom to to design, or do you feel restricted by the by the current planning system?
2: I mean, I, th- I think generally, I feel that the the planning policy plan-led system is is restrictive. I think no more now than it's ever been really i think the focus is very much on restricting development um and 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 it depends from from council to council how they actually deal with design you get you get some councils who are quite and some officers who are quite happy to to let you lead on design because you're effectively a designer Uh, whereas others there seems to be you know, a little bit more. Uh, they want to get a bit more involved in the design, in inverted commas, um, and often that simply means materials. Um, and and the issue that we have is there's really no policies that aren't very very subjective, which which lead to um, some kind of design framework. And so we very much design blind in that respect. Uh, and I think uh, you know a, a change would be welcome, certainly. I think that the, the worry is if it's too restrictive, you're gonna end up with very much, um, you know, very similar pr- proposals and schemes in the same areas. And that's that's a real worry really from a design perspective because like with Port Sunlight, uh, variety is very much um, uh, what attracts a lot of people to it. and And, you know, it's important to have that variety in terms of look, detail, scale, Massing—that's uh, what. If you think of, you know, a lot of the places in the world which work very well as 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 town planning and as um, beautiful places, they have that variety. They're not all the same. Um, and and at the moment, I'm afraid that um, you know planning policy doesn't really allow for that flexibility.
1: Yeah, and thinking now a bit more about the proposed planning reforms. Um, we'll we'll go. I'll ask you, Steve, in a moment to explain those in sort of layman's terms, in terms of, of what it, what it's going to mean, um, mm-hmm. if that's not too much of an ask. Um, <laughs> um, no problem. So, I'm, I'm going to ask you both this question, um, and and it's this. So the planning reforms have been have been talked about a lot um, recently. They've been described in a multitude of different ways. Uh, here's a few words: uh, shameful. Welcome, long overdue, radical. Uh, Simon, we'll start with you. What, what's the truth? Um, well, at the moment,
2: we don't really, ha- in terms of the planning for reforms, we, we only really have a very basic white paper to work off. I think, I think the aspiration is is good, um, but I think what's maybe been underestimated is how. Um, the issues run right through the system, right from the top all the way down. And obviously, we deal with planning officers day to day. Um, All they can do is work off the framework that they're given, the planning policies that they're given. And this is is a problem. And the new reforms say all the right things and in theory should work brilliantly uh, if it's done properly. But, you know, since the last planning reforms, I think it's still only 50% of councils have a current up-to-date plan in place, which is adopted. So how are we going to, a wholesale reform of the system and the policies, how is that going to work? And and is it actually going to be able to get adopted this time?
1: Mm. Steve, same question to you. What's what's your perception of, of what you've read from the white paper?
0: Well, I think of those descriptions that you read out, Dan, I would probably say I'm more in the, uh, in the welcome camp. Um, mm. I think... There are some some positive um, measures set out within the white paper. Obviously, we need more detail on some of them. But what the white paper does do is effectively expand on some of the key themes which are already set out in the MPPF um, and really designed to uh, deliver a a faster and simpler planning system. That's what it sets out to achieve. Um, And one that also looks to stimulate growth on on the back of, obviously, the, the issues of COVID that we're all encountering. Um, now, to achieve that, they've included in the white paper uh, three key pillars, as they see them, um, all of which obviously need to work in harmony to make sure that what they're setting out to deliver can actually be achieved. Now, you know, one of those pillars is, is planning for development, which focuses on on the plan making system, which Simon's just been talking about, and that does very much look to streamline the plan making system from what at the moment could be anything between four to seven years or, or longer in some cases, to something which should only take between 30 to 42 months. And um, Now that would be a big benefit if that can be the, be the case, and the intention is to, to streamline those by removing a lot of the policies which are included within these documents, the sort of general policies, so that local plans can instead just focus very much on sites which will come forward for development and having site-specific policies to to achieve that Um, and then alongside that they've obviously got the other pillars one of which is is the planning for beautiful and sustainable places and so it's just important that they they all work together to ensure that we do get that that faster and simpler planning system ultimately
1: absolutely Um, you said there about um, site-specific policy Uh, could you explain what that might look like um, under the new reforms if they are indeed adopted So, I mean, you do have that at the moment in some local plans,
0: you know, you'll have a large strategic site which is allocated for so many dwellings or different different land uses and within that there will be specific criteria on, on the amount of open space that's needed or access requirements or off-site contributions, so it will provide that detail and a bit more clarity, I guess, as to what is going to be needed from that development Now, whether that will go down to design as well, we'll have to wait and see. Obviously, as as we're talking about, we don't want that to be too prescriptive in terms of what can then come forward, particularly on a large development site. Because the last thing we all want is a scheme of a thousand units with every house looking the same necessarily. Mm. So, so I think that that'll be important, um, and obviously there'll be some flexibility for local authorities to to prepare those 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 policies in consultation with the development industry.
1: And St- um, Simon, sorry, how much more enjoyable and productive would your uh, would your job be if these design codes were adopted?
2: Well, I suppose the million dollar question is it depends what they entail. But it, I think, yeah, the more that we can agree, I suppose, a framework of design. Um, I mean, really, all we want to deal with is design in terms of the planning process, the more things which can be dealt with you know in a sort of consultation prior to an actual, an actual application in a wider sense in a in a more strategic policy sense so you apply for a, a you know a planning uh, application on a brownfield site in the middle of let's say Birkenhead down the road it's already established that it can be used for housing commercial and a number of other uses and it can be a, up to a certain amount of stories it can be a certain type of uh, building and then they're all sort of deferred and already pre-agreed and when you apply for planning really all you're dealing with is actually what the building looks like and how it functions um that would be an awful lot easier for the planning officer for one certainly because they're having to deal with the principle of development on every single scheme but also um, it focuses on the important stuff which is how the building functions and what it looks like and how it how it segues really into its surrounding context um, and that's really where the time should be spent in the planning process, mm. rather than rather than trying to establish whether the housing is acceptable. Whether sorry, go on. No, sorry.
0: No, no. Just just putting in there, Simon. One of the things they are looking to do um, is obviously introduce and, and identify growth areas in local plans moving forward, yeah. which would be for for large scale development where there's you know a permission in principle, effectively for outline permission granted through the local plan allocation. It would then be a case of going on to the, you know, the the effectively the reserve matters application, yeah, where yeah, the, yeah, where the detail will come through the design code. But if if on one hand through the growth areas you're looking to accelerate that approval process, the last thing we then want through the design code process is to then just cause delay further down the line. Yeah. So it's important, therefore, that the design codes work in, in the right way in that
2: in that, I, in that extent. And I think that, I mean, this I suppose that's what we're what we're a bit worried about, and the elephant in the room really is is design itself is extremely subjective, um, and and everyone's opinion is different. What wheel design is different from another architect, obviously. What's what wheel design is different from the idea that the planner had, maybe. Um, and this is where the issues come along. The amount of applications we make, and uh, you know, I think we're pretty good at design, but. The amount of applications we make and, and the consultees don't like the design, it happens every time. Um, and even on buildings, which we finished and then eventually people have said, well, this looks great. Um, we got a lot of grief for on the design at the early stage. So uh, just from those few examples, design is hugely subjective and it's something we've spent a lot of time learning how to do and trying to understand. Absolutely. And I, I think, think, it. Did... go on.
1: I think, you know, you, you hire an architect to design your, your development, don't you? That's that's their job and that should be they should be left to, to do that. And this mm. sort of feeds into um, a debate that's been rumbling on among architects for a while now about not being involved or as involved in the process as perhaps they should be. Yeah. Uh, well, what do you think about that?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think, I suppose, uh, the whole influx of design-build uh, contracting uh, and procurement has has kind of left us out a little bit in in the important parts, which is delivering the design. and we spend an awful lot of time thinking and designing and agreeing principles with planners. and then often or some sometimes um we're not involved in the actual delivery of that design and it, it gets done separately. And I think firstly, that's something i'd like to, i'd like to be involved in every scheme that we design so that we can control when things change, I suppose, because things have to change sometimes. Um, But also, um, you know, I'd like to see an architect involved in every scheme that gets designed from scratch. And unfortunately, that's not always the case. Um, And, you know, I think design should be front and center of a planning policy, of a planning system. Um, My concerns are how that is actually rolled out and how it's controlled without it being someone's opinion
1: yeah absolutely and to go back to what you were talking about just a moment ago about having those um pre-application um uh, discussion and making them carry a bit more weight in terms of the design so that you can then focus later down the line on on the sort of the Mm nitty-gritty and this is this is all part of how you might um streamline the process i suppose
2: yeah, and it's, I suppose it's quite similar to a building regulation system, a building control system at the moment. You have a, a robust set of plans, which are the the approved documents. You apply for your plan approval, you get that, it, hopefully, uh, and then it sets out a number of conditions which you have to satisfy afterwards, uh, all in line with what you've already submitted, and it's almost self-approving in many ways. Hence, the, the building control system has been able to go down the approved inspector's route. I'm not necessarily suggesting that's appropriate for planning. I think um, there's too much riding on it, but I, I think the more you can agree at pre-app stage as a formal pre-app, which has a formal decision, I suppose, can ultimately make everyone's life a lot easier. Not only the planning officer, who then has to deal with less things on a full application, almost as Steve said before, a reserve matters. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, I think there there are there are ways like that to. Minimise the amount of time that planning applications are taken at the moment, because with all the targets in the world, I mean, Steve, how many how many of your applications get dealt with within time?
0: Oh yeah, very few. Yeah, yeah, and that's not a criticism of the offices either. it's just the 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 process really, and it is. So many people have to be consulted, and external consultees as well. And you know, I know, I know, there's there's some councils who have already got you know design codes, etc. in place. And whilst it does hopefully go about and deliver a better quality design, it doesn't necessarily translate into a quicker process, mm. you know, and you can en- end up being bogged down in the detail even more. So, you know, as there's differences of opinion as to what is, should be the appropriate design for that area, you know, well, we've got this guy that says this thing and, you know, the architects got their own opinion and the developers mm. got their own opinion. So, you know, it's how that's all brought together really in controlled in an efficient manner. Um, I, I do think engagement engagement is going to be key, you know. Both sort of in the plan making process for for design codes themselves, you know, and and communities are encouraged to get involved. So how's that process managed? And then, yeah. you know, at the decision decision taking stage as well, it's it's you know it's important that you know members as well are aware of of what process has gone through to arrive at the scheme that's on the table.
2: Yeah, yeah and I I think you know the best places that we've worked in terms of local authorities are you know those authorities who've gone through the um, housing land assessment process who've consulted on it who've adopted it and then when you actually submit a planning application and it's already been accepted for housing in that process it's it's deemed almost acceptable the principle and Mm. it just cuts away so much of the objection and discussion that that takes mm. place because mm. there's already been the opportunity for locals to comment on that and mm. it's been adopted so you take that off the table and then you're really only dealing with you know a very a, a much more uh, streamlined set of issues uh, to get approval for and it and it makes a huge difference that
1: mm. yeah absolutely um talking about consultation there uh, with, with the public um <laughs> a couple of weeks ago we ran an ran an article about um some local authorities in greater manchester specifically salford and oldham and i think stockport as well have have sort of chimed in with this who are basically against the proposed planning reforms uh, yeah. oldham council called them fundamental said they fundamentally undermine democratic local control and I guess, Steve, that, that sort of points to what you just said, that how important consultation is is going to be in order to keep that scrutiny and, and democratic uh, element to the process.
0: Yes, that, that's right. And uh, I mean, the plan making process, the local plan making process will, will still remain very similar to what it is today. It will still go through the examination process. It's just very much designed to be a quicker process than what it is now um, and, and making sure that Local authorities do meet the timescales which are put forward, um, and there is talk of sanctions if they don't. Not sure what those sanctions would be, but you know I don't think much changes necessarily in that regard. Um, and I think that's important, sort of moving forward with with the with the public as well, because clearly they're going to be expected to have quite a an active role in in other elements of plan making, such as design codes, where you know they're going to be getting asked, what do they view. To be sort of the, the popular and characteristic elements of their community, <laughs> you know, and it and it begs the question. And if you don't get enough buy-in or or involvement from communities in things like the design code making, then then what weight can they carry? So I don't think I don't think the reforms do away with with engagement at all. I think it, there's going to be emphasis on local authorities to, you know, make sure that they've got uh, the measures in place and resources in place, which obviously they need support on. To make yeah. sure to make sure that they do go about that proactively,
2: and I think I think the important word to focus on from from what you said in that quote, Dan, is the word control. And yes, we talk about planning control, but I think too often the word control means restriction rather than f- facilitating control within gui- within guidelines or within um, the local plan. And very much we feel. The planning system is is simply restricting development now. It's it's trying to reduce it as much as possible, when actually what's required is the opposite.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, we do need to talk about um, councils. You know, th- these guys are the are going to be the gatekeepers to to any change that's going to come about in the planning system because everything goes through them. So I guess change will, will only come about as quickly as they can adapt. Um, Simon what are you are you hopeful that they will be able to adapt to to a new system and and as a result the the planning system will become more bearable for for people using it
2: in a word the first question are, are, are local our local authorities going to be able to adapt I, I at the moment i'm a little bit negative about that because as i mentioned before you know a lot of them haven't even been able to um bring in a new local plan within the last 10 or 15 years, up to 50% at the moment. Um, so to go through a whole other process of um, policy for everything is going to be a huge challenge for local authorities, and, and they need to be given the time to be able to do it. And a lot of these, I mean, feel free to interject, Steve, but it, it mm-hmm. feels like a lot of the local plan issues in terms of adoption have been as a result of... Um, the housing assessments and mm-hmm. and and ultimately mm-hmm. consultation
0: yeah yeah and i think obviously you know, there's i'm not going to name any authorities obviously but some, some are under more pressures than others to, to get a plan in place but the the lack of any sort of sanctions really in the past has probably meant that there's not been as keen to do so as, as what we would all like mm-hmm. i think that's what the government now is looking to introduce in terms of the, this 30 to 42 months to get it in place um, that is, you know, potentially much quicker than what it has been done in the past. Mm-hmm. Um, that is going to need a, a change from, from, from mm-hmm. officers, but also from, from, you know, at a political level, you know, that they're going to have to embrace change ultimately, and they're going to have to accept change. <laughs> and sometimes the criticisms yeah. that we're getting is because they simply, you know, they simply don't want to embrace change within their area. And it does mean difficult decisions have to be made. And, um, but ultimately, that is that's what's required at the end of the day to, to, to you know to, to achieve the government's target you know for three hundred homes three hundred thousand homes a year nationally, and to, to bring about this faster and simpler planning system.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I think I think ultimately, planners and planning officers need to uh, focus on on what they're qualified to do, and that's that's planning. And at the moment, because. The, the system is so um, complex and um, it, it, so focused on administration this is touched on in, the, in in the white paper about using more modern methods of communication and having mm. digital plans and various mm. other things mm. this cannot this can all help there's no doubt about that mm. we ne- mm. we need to get back to local authorities and individual planning officers being able to actually do their jobs and they're not being allowed to do that at the moment, based on the current system, mm. that's ultimately the issue, I think, and 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 policy has a huge role to play in that. In fact, it's 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 all down to policy. Mm. Um, and and separating some of the key issues uh, for, with a, for a site to be sort of pre-approved, um, so that the planners can focus on that side of it, is is I think integral to 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 how this comes forward. Otherwise, I don't think anything will change.
0: And I think that's partly behind the sort of the you know the standard method that the council uh, the the government is introducing for councils to calculate their housing requirements, mm. and making those requirements a binding requirement so that that debate about housing numbers and there will be still some debate, but it it is diminished in terms of this is what you now need to go and deliver, yeah, and and they have to uh, you know um, look at that positively and go and make those decisions.
2: Yes, so, yeah, and then just to I mean. To, to just go back to the, I think it was the second question regarding consultation, mm-hmm. um, you know, I suppose there's two different types of consultation we talk about. There's a the consultation for the, for the planning policy documents, which is obviously the public plus um, all the other stakeholders. And then there's consultation in regards to individual planning applications. And at the moment, whilst I'm all for consultation, there's far too much weight applied to, I suppose what we call negative consultation and it's restrictive consultation and and the whole nimbyism argument um, and and often far too much weight is given to that, everyone's entitled to an opinion of course they are, but those opinions have to be aligned with policy and too often they're not, but they're still given weight Um, I mean Steve when was the last time you had a a petition in favour of a development Mm -hmm. for instance a long time (laughs) (laughs) Exactly, but you get one against it for virtually every application yes yeah
0: yeah i think it is that that's that's an important element isn't it in terms of the planning balance and exercise that goes on it's it's perhaps easy to if you get one or two objections from consultees to to go with those objections rather than necessarily weigh up you know the schemes as a whole and the wider benefits um so i think that does need careful consideration still moving forward and i guess it it begs a question as well on 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 you know, going back to the design code element, if we bring forward a scheme that is say, I don't know, 70, 80% compliant with that design code, but not fully, mm. where does that then sit in yeah. the planning balance versus other all the benefits that might be alongside it? So I guess exactly. that'll that'll play out, I guess, in, in due course.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um it, I think very, we should very quickly mention something that is a, a very uh um, divisive topic, and that's the Greenbelt. Uh, recently, uh, Stockport, some Stockport councillors um, lodged a motion to withdraw from the Greater Manchester Spatial Framework. One of the reasons was that they said um, that it was against their sort of brownfield first approach. Um, obviously, Greenbelt land will be protected under the new system, but do you envision, uh, Simon and Steve as well, um, more Greenbelt development? under the the new planning reforms potentially there's got to be some kind of concession that hasn't there
2: yeah uh, definitely and and you know myself and steve have been involved recently in a number of green belt schemes which we would always say don't don't make it any worse as what as what's there and hopefully add to um the green belt and the enjoyment of the green belt uh, and and there obviously has to be robust policies in place to protect that it's 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 arguably one of the most important elements of, of planning policy—the protection of the green belt. It's a huge asset to the country, um, but at the same time, I think we need to move away from this sort of blanket green belt policy. The, the green belt, as a lot of people envisage it, is a lovely big field with maybe a, a really old oak tree sat in the middle of it, and you know, on a lovely summer's day. That's that's not the whole green belt, and and there's a lot of parts of the green belt which are suitable for development. Um, within strict and much stricter regulations than in a town centre, and rightly so. Um, mm-hmm. uh, there's a, there's there's brownfield sites within the green belt. A lot of people don't realise that, and and I think they're suitable for development, and they can they can contribute positively to a number of um, a number of uh, policies, council policies, ultimately.
1: Yeah. And Steve,
2: mm, yeah. what
0: are your thoughts on that? Yeah, my, my view is obviously, you know, the Green Belt is there to be protected and that is what policy looks to do. Um, but ultimately moving forward, it's inevitable that some areas and local authorities are gonna have to release greenbelt land moving forward to, to meet their future housing requirements, you know, and when those requirements, as I say, become a binding requirement, it is therefore gonna perhaps focus the minds a little bit more. And as Simon says, not every parcel of greenbelt land is of the same value as, as as others, and there are brownfield parcels in there as well which can be released. And I think people still need to realise that if we if one or two greenfield sites are released, you know, there's still masses of, of greenbelt land still remaining, you know, for, for people to enjoy. So, um, yeah, I think it's inevitable it will have to happen still, but it will be very much to the plan plan making process.
2: And I think I think that sorry Dan, but I, I think that's. Uh, that's that's the important point the, the the plan the local plans have the ability to have a say on this and to set their own policies and requirements for development in the green belt this is the opportunity to do it and by not doing it you're missing a chance mm-hmm. to do it mm-hmm. and 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 you know cheshire west nearly fell foul of that a few years ago when they were suffering from a number of appeals in and around uh, places where Steve sat right now I suppose
0: mm-hmm.
2: um, which were which were being overturned at appeal because there just wasn't that robust plan in place to, to say that we can build the houses that we can and we're required to. so I think um, I think it, it's an opportunity for councils and and for people who write local plans to control this now and, and I use the word control positively there because within the green belt it is a positive use. Um, and it has to be protected.
1: Absolutely. Um, We'll we'll draw things to a close shortly. I've just got one more question. So with the um, planning reforms, they're very much focused on boosting housing numbers. 300,000 new homes a year was the figure um, that Generic put forward. Is there a worry that with the streamlining of this planning planning process um, that it could be in favour of these... Are volume house builders who who build developments lacking in character, or do you think it could open the door for more creative uh, and more beautiful uh, homes? As as Jenrick has has said, Simon, what do you think about that? Um, I hope it would. <laughs> uh, I, you know,
2: I'm 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 still a little bit sceptical about the detail of of what's going to come out of 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 the emerging policy and. Um, I think what we need to avoid is, is arguably what um, uh, planning in the USA has is, is, is fallen foul of with, you know, large cookie cutter estates, tract housing and, and various other things. And, you know, I think I think the planning system uh, and the planning officers have a, a, a larger role to play in this um, in terms of larger schemes, house builder schemes. Um, I mean, it's no secret that house builders use the same house types for virtually every site, whether it's in Leamington Spa or whether it's in Birkenhead. Um, and and how they clad those and how they furnish those is slightly different for each. Um, and, you know, I've been an architect. Uh, I always come from a point of uh, site-specific architecture, and it should change for virtually every site. So how policy reflects that, I, I don't know. I don't have the answer. Um, but I would love to see some policies which, um, I suppose, encourage we use the word beautiful. I'm, I'm not quite wholly comfortable with uh, in the way it's been used, but um, to, to, to follow on that, to, to create beautiful housing estates and and um, infill developments.
1: Absolutely. Steve, what are your
2: thoughts?
0: Well, obviously, the gov- I mean, there's a balance to be struck, isn't there? Because the government set itself a target of 300,000 homes a year. To deal with that, we can't just rely on on the house builders alone. We do need sort of SMEs in the marketplace to come forward as well and make sure that they can still deliver. What we don't want to see therefore is is, you know, a design process or a design co process which actually has implications on on the viability of schemes and, and profit margins such that Yes, the SMEs think, actually, you know what, we're not sure it's it, it, it makes profitable sense for us to actually do this. You know, we're not going to make any money on it. Um, and then we're, we're reliant on, on the, you know, the volume house builders. You can actually have their, their, their standard product, which, you know, works for them. And again, then if they're asked to, to change their design concepts, does that impact on on them? Does it impact on, on the rate of delivery? You know, which ultimately what this is all aimed at, to accelerate delivery. So... You know it's going to be interesting. I don't got the answer at the moment, but it'll be interesting to see how it plays out because it, it needs a careful consideration to make sure that you know they, as I said at the start, that they all work in harmony really to, to, to bring about what the government wants to achieve.
2: Yeah, and there's a lot of compromise as well, as you've just alluded to. It's um, there's always a compromise in terms of design because of cost, cost is always an issue for developers, mm. and and what we often say is, you know, what. What I feel one of our skills is, Patrick Johnson's skills, that is, is uh, being able to design two different budgets. And mm. it would be wonderful to, to have a blank checkbook and, and create beautiful uh, spaces mm-hmm. and places all the time. And mm. we always strive to do that, obviously, on no matter what budget we have. And I think that has to be a consideration as well, um, because you've got the housing numbers to, to, to satisfy you've got your own design codes to satisfy and you've got the, you know, the developers requirements to satisfy often. Mm. Uh, And they all have to be, they all have to be very carefully um, balanced. And often we sit within the middle of all that, Mm. almost negotiating with each side Mm. to get the best scheme out of it.
1: Mm. Yeah, Absolutely. Really interesting. Um, I think that was a, a very insightful discussion. Lots of, lots of things to go away and think about there. And obviously we wait with bated breath uh, to see the, the devil in the detail that everyone is, is so eager to see uh, in terms of these planning reforms. Simon and Steve, thank you so much for, for joining us on the podcast. Thanks, Dan. No, thank you, Dan. That's all for today's episode. I'd like to say a big thank you to Paddock Johnson for sponsoring this podcast. Thank you to our guests, Simon Halliwell and Steve Grimster, and thank you for listening. I've been your host, Dan Whelan, and I hope you can tune in next time for another episode of the Place Northwest podcast.